Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Today's episode is with the Institute of Noetic Sciences, IONS, where we'll learn about health and healing, energy medicine, and finding your noetic signature. Helene Wahbet is the Director of Research at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and an Adjunct Assistant Professor in the Department of Neurology at Oregon Health and Science University. Dr. Wahba is clinically trained as a naturopathic physician and research trained with a Master of Clinical Research and two postdoctoral research fellowships. She's published on and spoken internationally about her studies on contemporary and alternative medicine, mind-body medicine, stress, and post-traumatic stress disorder and their relationships to physiology, health, and healing. Her current research interests include healing stress and trauma, examining mechanisms of mind-body medicine, and rigorously studying extended human capacities. Dr. Wahba's extensive meditation training includes the mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher training by John Kabat-Zinn, a four-year meditation teacher training with Core Light and a 19-year regular meditation practice. Okay, well, thanks for joining us today, Helena. I'm super excited to have you on the show. It's such a pleasure to be here with you today. I'm excited to share about the work. Yeah, me too. Me too. So I have heard a lot about the Institute of Noetic Sciences. I think for a lot of people who are listening, this might be their first time hearing about this institute. So can you tell us what exactly is the Institute of Noetic Sciences? Who founded it? Uh, What does the institute focus on? Yes, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, the acronym is, is actually IONS, so we call it IONS, which is a nice short name, <laughs> has a really fascinating history. Um, it was founded by an astronaut, Edgar Mitchell, who was actually an Apollo 14 astronaut and the sixth person to walk on the moon. So he went to the moon, he did his job on the moon, and then he was coming home in his capsule. And the capsule was spinning around. And as it was spinning, he was seeing the earth, the sun and the moon, the earth, the sun and the moon. And he had this incredible transcendent oneness experience where he felt completely connected and one with everything around him, including the earth, the stars, the sun and the capsule. So this is an astronaut who's an engineer. So this is a very foreign, unique experience for him. He got back to earth and was like, what was that? I need to know what that was and how um, we can experiencing it, how to study it, how to use science to be able to figure out what was going on. So that was in 1973. So he founded the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and for the last now almost 50 years, been doing work on consciousness and this sense of interconnectedness and what it means and how we can use that to support ourselves in our lives. Wow. And what does the Institute focus on? I know there's a number of different tracks. Uh, Could you talk about some of the different tracks that you guys have? Yes. So... Um, IONS is focused on a strategic um, plan of five pillars. So the first pillar is championed by the science team, of which I'm the director, and it's called the IONS Discovery Lab. 
And we use this online survey to be able to see how transformative practices like meditation or yoga or any type of transformative practices supports people in increasing their interconnectedness, their um, psi or extended human capacities and well-being. The second pillar of which we're also, the science team's the champion of, is called IONS X. So that's an application-driven research program that's focused on showing real-world examples of how our consciousness affects the physical world. And I'll share more about that um, in a little bit. Pillar three is about how do we bring these understandings into our daily awareness? How do we bring the noetic, this inner knowing into our daily life to support us in a, in a practical way? Pillar four is about getting the word out and shifting the conversation so that this is more present in our um, so society, culture, and pillar five is about creating a strong foundation to support this work into the future. So that is kind of a broad overview of the work that IONS is doing in the world today. We have a, a physical campus in Northern California, and yet it's a global institute. We have um, outreach and research studies that we do around the world through online platforms. Wow, really interesting. And I think a lot of people who are maybe perhaps just entirely scientifically minded um, and interested kind of only in linear and logical thought have had a really difficult time understanding the world of consciousness. Um, so I think that the work that you guys are doing is really profound and really important. Are some of your studies on your website or does the public have access to some of these studies or is it just largely used um, for different organizations? So we um, have a website, www.noetic.org, and there's an area on there called publications where you can see all of our peer-reviewed publications. And that's what's kind of the gold standard in the academic community. Um, so we do do our, you know, standard, rigorous, scientific method and studies to um, answer our research questions and publish those in peer-reviewed journals. So that's for the scientist, academic-minded people who are interested in the, the details of our methods. We also have newsletters and blogs and summaries that you can see that, that are more um, layperson-focused so that you know, anybody can be able to understand the work that we're doing and the implications of the results that we're finding. Wonderful. Yeah, and those are all available on our website. I invite you to check it out and, and see at what level you want to be engaged in. There's plenty there to explore. Wonderful. Helena, why did you decide to work at IONS? Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and what brought you here? Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic story, actually. So I, um, as you know, you heard in my bio, I was a naturopathic physician, so I was clinically trained, working with patients in my private practice, um, very focused on mind-body medicine and supporting people to be, be on their path of optimal health. I had done some research 
um, before I went into clinical practice, and I just kept being drawn to get back into clinical research. So I ended up um, being at Oregon Health and Science University, focused on mind-body medicine, specifically mindfulness meditation and doing meditation research with combat veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder, and did many studies with mindfulness meditation. I learned from a friend about the Institute of Noetic Sciences doing an expert um, meditation researcher gathering because they were noticing that the meditation field in the West, the research field, was very focused, narrowly focused on specific research questions like how can clinical meditation programs improve our health or what are the you know, physical changes in our bodies when we have a meditation training. But what wasn't being addressed were things like the spiritual aspects, the transcendent aspects. Um, when mindfulness meditation was brought to the West in the 80s, I think part of its success was that it was secular and it didn't have a spiritual component. And I think that's you know, great in that it really allowed mindfulness and meditation to explode. You know, you see it all over the place here. When I first started this research, it was still very taboo, but now everyone's doing mindfulness. So, you know, the separation from the, the spiritual um, origins of the meditation really made it popular, but there was so much missing in the types of research questions that we were asking. Anyway, I, I ended up going to this um, focus group with these meditation researchers. It was called the Future of Meditation Project. We did a very large survey of meditators and a number of different presentations. And the culmination of that work was a, a very large paper with, you know, about 30 different authors you know, high-ranking scientists in their field saying, hey, there's a lot more to meditation research that we need to pay attention to. And, and that was published in a very high-impact journal. So as I was in this group at IONS, I couldn't believe that they were actually able to say some of their research questions out loud, because in my academic setting, there was no way I would be able to ask about the spiritual aspects or, oh, you experienced telepathy with your teacher. And um, I began a conversation with their CEO at the time and um, ended up through a synchronistic chain of events, um, mm -hmm. joining the team as a scientist. My family, I was in Portland, Oregon at the time, but my family was in California and, um, and, about, I think it took about a year, but I ended up joining their staff and then becoming scientist and then eventually director. And I'm so grateful to be where I am now. It is the first time in my life that my personal kind of experiences and beliefs can actually line up with my professional world and that I'm, you know, I'm not afraid to ask the research questions that are really um, deep and important to me. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing your journey towards uh, 
working at IONS. And I think we'll go into this a little bit later because I read your book, uh, Free to Be Me. And I, I know that there's a lot more context to the journey um, to get you to where you to where you are now. Um, so yeah, thank you. And I love that you feel that you, what you do professionally um, is in alignment with where you are personally. I think that for a lot of people, we were sort of um, taught to dissect our life or create this duality um, and right. and live live a life, you know, with our family and friends and then live a very separate life at work. And I think that's that's even, at least in my case, it's felt even more true as a woman, um, you know, yes. in a very uh, kind of male-dominated industries that I've worked in. So I love that that these two things are aligned for you. Absolutely. I'm so grateful. Not many people can say that. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful. Helena, um, IONS has done a lot of research on consciousness and how it affects the physical world. Like you mentioned, can you share with us about consciousness and how it applies to health and healing? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I alluded to this in terms of the types of research questions we can ask. Our dominant paradigm right now is called materialism. And what that means is that everything arises or comes from the physical, that only the physical is what matters, if you will. And that our consciousness is a construct of our physical brain. And so when you when you think about that model, there's no way that my intention or my well wishes or anything about my consciousness could influence the physical world. So what we're seeing today is that this is likely not true, that there is so much evidence now in multiple different fields that our consciousness is not actually limited to our physical brain, to our physical body, that our consciousness can go far beyond that and actually influence the physical world um, around it. And so relevant to health and healing, there are numerous, numerous studies now that have looked at positive intention and how that can influence humans animals, plants, even cells. And these, you know, there's, you know, so many different studies that have done, been done in the lab, very rigorous, controlled, you know, double blind, randomized, where people are sending positive intentions towards whatever the target is. Let's say that it's a cell culture. And, um, and when they look at the changes in those cell cultures where the positive intention is sent compared to the control where it wasn't sent, we see shifts in the cells. And this has been done in plants where you send positive intention to plants and they grow faster or, you know, in mice in the lab and even with people and health and we see over and over again that there is a positive effect that we're seeing from people just thinking, just sending positive intentions 
that whatever that's directed at improves. Now, these effects are small, so it's not like this huge, big effect, but the effect is definitely there. And considering that it should be zero in our materialistic paradigm where our, our conscious is just stuck in our brain, it's incredibly remarkable that we're seeing this over and over again. And so, you know, we just finished this amazing study at IONS that was looking at this with energy medicine practitioners. And we had 17 different energy medicine practitioners that gave sessions to people with hand and wrist pain. And so with their, you know, unique um, brand of positive intention, did a 30-minute session with um, these participants. We had almost 200 people coming through this study. And what we found was that there was an improvement in these people's pain and that it was clinically significant and statistically significant. So their pain reduced from the beginning to the end of this session and also it stayed reduced at three weeks later. So this is quite remarkable. So here are these energy medicine practitioners. They do one 30-minute session and these people's pain reduced. Again, if our consciousness was just stuck in the in our brain, that wouldn't be happening. Yeah. So, um, so I love that. So positive intention actually impacts, um, it, it could be inanimate or it could be like you said, cells, it could be some, you know, something within the human body or other humans. Um, I, yeah, I think from what I understand, energy follows thought, um, and not the other way around. I'm curious about how long you need to have the positive intention to make an impact. Um, and if you, let's say, have negative thoughts and positive thoughts, do your negative thoughts cancel out your positive ones? Like how long do you have to hold the positive intention? If you have that data, um, that would be something interesting because I think for a lot of people, I think that we are at least most Western culture, our thoughts are usually around fear and insecurity and worst case scenarios. And um, it's sort of like a subconscious program. And so um, even if let's say we set the intention for a positive outcome or positive intent uh, at the beginning of the day, our program might just continue running, which is you know mostly negative. So yeah, I'm curious um, if you have any inf information on that. That's a great question. Um as far as I know, there's been no formal study looking at the amount of time that we need to spend with intention to create a change. In you know, this large study I just shared with you, it was only a 30-minute session, which is quite remarkable to me that we saw a difference. There have been other energy medicine studies where they have multiple sessions over a number of weeks. So the simple answer is we really don't know how long, like if it's dose dependent, if you will, um, and subject to kind of this force-like nature where it's amount of time or amount of distance, um, what we see is that 
the consciousness studies give a characteristic of something that's called non-local. So in our everyday physical world, we have time that moves in a linear direction forward, right? And we have space. So we're on the phone here together, and yet you're physically separated from me. So in our material world, it would, if I was sending you intention, it would take a certain amount of time to get to you, right? So that's kind of like a physical model. But over and over again, we're seeing studies where that's not true. There's a really amazing um, series of studies called the Distant Mental Intentional Living Systems, D-M-I-L-S. And so what they did is they took pairs of people. One person, they were both hooked up to uh, devices that collected brain waves and heart waves and, you know, what was happening in the skin, breathing, etc., One person was the sender, and they sat in a room that was separate from the receiver. And so the sender, every time they'd see the person's picture show up on a TV screen, they would send them positive intentions. And then when the person's face would go away, they would stop sending. So you basically have this data where you can compare the sending uh, body signals to the non-sending body signals of both the sender and the receiver. And so what they found was that when the sending happened, there were changes in the receiver and that those changes happened instantaneously. So what does this tell us? That it's not this, you know, physical force that's needing to travel from the sender to the receiver I am intending and instantaneously there is a change in your body and that it's across distance. So back to your question about the positive and the negative, there's another really large study called the Global Consciousness Project that went on for over, you know, I think it was about 20 years. And they had these devices around the world that were called random number generators. And they basically spit out a random stream of zeros and ones. And for the most part, there's really nothing that should make it deviate from randomness and that we should always end up with an equal number of zeros and ones. And so, you know, in numerous previous studies, we found that there were people who could actually influence the zeros and ones with their intention in the laboratory. And so this is kind of a larger global effort to get the pulse, if you will, of the entire world, the global consciousness pulse. And so from this 20 years of data, they looked at what was happening with these streams of zeros and ones during negative negative events and then positive events. So they compared like all the different, you know, peace day meditations versus terrorist attacks, if you will, or 9-11 or really intense negative feeling events. And so what they found was that 
the negative and the positive actually influenced the random number generators. So it didn't matter whether it was a positive or a negative event. It was more related to the intensity of the emotion. So do I think only positive intention gets through? No, I don't. I think that all of our intentions matter whether they're positive or negative. And yes, you can be on the surface of your mind saying, I'm a magnificent, wonderful person. But if you have unresolved, you know, self-hatred or, you know, negative attitudes towards yourself, that's also going to influence what's, I imagine, energetically coming off of you. Now, Those studies that I just shared, you know, there's so much more that we need to do to understand how this works. And yet there is evidence that um, that the negative and the positive doesn't matter. It's the intensity of the emotion that's more important. The intensity of the emotion. I So I always thought that it was um, whoever had, like, I guess the most positive <laughs> intention uh, in the room could lift up the room, like in terms of entrainment. Um, but wow, this is interesting. So the intensity of the emotion actually um, entrains the, I guess, the field that they're around from what you're saying. From, from Yes, st- from this study. Well, they weren't really comparing them against each other at the same time. But what they noticed is like 9-11 influenced the data away from randomness. Wow. Peace Day also influenced the data more than randomness. So if you had Peace Day and 9-11 on the same day, who would win? I don't know. I really, Mm. I couldn't answer that. And, you know, there's also the studies um, with heart math that look at heart coherence to show how that, you know, transfers from one person to another when you talk about a field and how that can can ripple out. Um, I think there's so much more that we need to learn about that. And it's really fascinating and kind of scary to think about like the billions of people on our planet and all of their thoughts (laughs) and how does it actually, like what's the final outcome Hmm. of all those intentions, unconscious and conscious happening at the same time. And the outcome is what we see, right? We're seeing it around us. And so can we shift that um, with an increase of of positive intention that's deeply authentic and aligned with who we are? Wow. I don't know the answer to that, but I'm hoping that we will discover it as we move through this continued path. Wow. And I imagine that this year with COVID and quarantine, that there's been a lot of projection and uh, collective fear that's probably influenced our world, um, you know, in different ways, obviously, and continue and will continue Mm -hmm. to do so. So, wow. Super fascinating. I I have more questions than, than answers. And I'm, I'm very excited about this, (laughs) these studies. (laughs) Yeah. Cause I think, I I think it just changes the worldview of like, uh, you know, a diff, like, it's almost like if you're a defeatist or if you just, um, live your life reactively, 
Like, okay, this mm-hmm. is happening. I'm just going to react to it rather than taking a proactive stance and creating the future right. that I want and creating the reality that I want with my intentions and with my thoughts, which I think a lot of people really feel powerless um, mm-hmm. or are just stuck in a program that isn't working for them and are out of alignment. And I think for people that have that have uh, gone through this, this kind of transcendence or um, dark night of the soul and a been able to sort of create a very new future. I mean, I, I jokingly say I took a 10 year course correction on my life. <laughs> I spent, <laughs> you know, 10 years, uh, in New York, um, working and in, in, in an industry and on a path that really wasn't meant for me. And then came to California and sort of started to find much more alignment. And I think, um, a lot of my future I create, uh, I I've, I've essentially started to create my future in the present moment, um, with my intention and with my thought, because I've now realized how powerful that is. And it takes, it takes a while to change. It just definitely doesn't happen overnight. Um, for sure. And I'm still, (laughs) still a journey. (laughs) Absolutely. You know what I think, what you, you said just brought something up for me that I think is really important for our listeners to know. So what I was just sharing was kind of global big picture of our consciousness influencing the outside world, if you will, what we have very, very clear evidence of is that our intention, our emotions, our personal um, attitudes definitely influence our physical bodies and our health. And so my intention and the way that I perceive my world influences my nervous system and influences whether I'm in a fight or flight stressful response versus a relaxed calm response. So I can be, you know, before COVID driving in my car and hit a traffic jam and, you know, maybe I'm late for a meeting. So my thought process, my judgments about that situation completely determines how my body reacts. So I can be relaxed, I can be in start deep breathing, I can think about gratitude and all the things I'm thankful for in my life, I can think about my family, my children, how thankful I am for everything and be in a very beautiful, relaxed, parasympathetic state where my immune system's working great, my, you know, everything's functioning well in my body, okay? Same exact external scenario I can completely flip out because I'm going to be late for my meeting and what's going to happen and, you know, feel angry and powerless and out of control because I can't move forward. And that's going to trigger my nervous system to go into fight or flight. And it's going to create this cascade in my immune system. My digestive system shuts down. It creates this whole physiological response that creates illness. And so you know, taking it to a very individual, personal level, our intention and the way that we perceive matters. And what's so empowering is that I have complete control over that. I don't have control over the traffic jam. I don't have control over other people's actions around me for the most part, but I do have control over how I think about my world. And that that influences so much within ourselves and can dramatically affect our health and wellness. 
Wow. Yeah. Beautiful. I love the the traffic example, <laughs> I think, I think for, <laughs> for a lot of people, I think it's, um, you know, sitting and waiting, uh, or the, the, whenever there's something unexpected that happens, I think a lot of people just end up checking out or, um, you know, going into a fear, a fear-based reality. And that just makes the situation mm-hmm. worse, not better. Yeah. And it's funny, I've actually tested this theory out um, when I've gone to like the supermarket and there's an extra long line or things aren't working out for me. I I just, all of a sudden I, I see myself sliding into this like negative spiral of judgment. And then all of a sudden I'm like, wait, wait, let me mm. see if I can go in the other direction and just sit and meditate. You know, like when do we have moments in our lives to even just be with ourselves and, and go into, uh, into our heart. And so I, I switch it and I go into that direction and I swear to you, <laughs> like every time the line somehow disappears, you know, whatever, right. whatever has been stuck, there's just more movement. And so like right. the, my experience of time actually shifts when I move away from a fear-based reality to a, I guess, love-based reality. So absolutely interesting. (laughs) That's beautiful. Yeah. And so much of our fear comes from feeling out of control or powerless about something. And so if we can feel empowered by, I mean, we do have control over our mind. You know, we can control how we're thinking and how we're perceiving things. And so I think it's deeply empowering to be able to feels that sense of, oh, okay, I can actually do something about this within my own self that often, as you just mentioned, ends up shifting our external world without us even intending it. (laughs) It's quite powerful. Yeah. It's so powerful. It's, I mean, once I realized that, just that alone, I mean, my whole life changed. So, Helena, Can you talk to us about the science of channeling? Yeah, we have, um, you know, I mentioned the multiple pillars at at ION through our strategic focus. Another research program that um, I'm heading up is called the ION's Channeling Research Program. And, you know, ION's has been working on this for many decades. So I'm basically building on what's already been done of, at IONS and other places as well. And so people all say, well, what's, what's channeling? What do you call channeling? Depending on who you talk to, you might get different definitions. But the way that we're describing it is a very general, broad definition. And it goes beyond our traditional five senses. It's basically our capacity to reveal information and energy not limited by our conventional notions of time and space. And so you might have heard different terms for this. You could call it extended human capacities or extrasensory perception or the most kind of taboo word is psychic or psi. Um, It ranges from, you know, gut hunches or intuition to more extreme examples like um, trans channeling or mediumship. And our research program is uh, attempting to answer six questions. The first is, what do we already know? How common is channeling and what are its characteristics? Can we show that the channeling is uh, true? Can we verify some of the information? Um, How does it work? 
is there anything about the channelers that makes them unique or characteristic to them? And um, finally, is the content useful? So with those questions, we have multiple different studies that we're conducting under each one of those. So far, we've seen that, first of all, channeling is incredibly common. It's actually not rare. It's, you know, we're finding over 80% of the people that we pull have had at least one channeling experience. That it's not indicative of a mental health condition, that most people who have channeling experiences are mentally healthy and don't have any sort of psychopathology. Um, and that it really does, this experience of channeling exists on a spectrum. And that each person's experience is unique to them. And that's, you know, kind of getting into the noetic signature, which is in the title. What we're proposing is that everybody, everyone is just this innate capacity has um, the capacity to channel and that the way it shows up for them in their lives is unique to them, that they have their own unique noetic signature. It's like this fingerprint in terms of how it shows up. Do you feel things in your body? Do you see things? Do you hear things? Are you int intuitive? Do you, you know, cha uh, do trans channeling? That it's very, very unique to you and that that unique signature is beautiful in, in its uniqueness and that there's uh, such incredible diversity with everyone's different abilities that we can really celebrate and nurture. So um, that's a little bit about the channeling program. I'm actually working on a book right now with New Harbinger um, about the science of channeling, and that's going to come out in September of 2021. It's, it is a, for the general public, so it's very accessible. And um, I'm going through what we, you know, all the different studies we and others have done and how to help people nurture their own noetic signature, their own channeling capacities to help them in their lives. Do you have any interesting stories of, I guess, healing um, from channeling from people who have who have channeled? Um, there are so many stories. <laughs> I, um, I'll just I'll just pick a, a few. You know, generally speaking, mediumship is quite profound for many people in terms of helping them process their grief. So for the listeners who don't know, mediums um, believe that they are uh, connecting with deceased humans. And, you know, a person who's had a loved one pass might go to a medium to see if they could actually connect with their loved one on the other side. And, you know, I could talk for a very long time about whether they really are talking to the deceased loved one or not, or if it's, you know, what's going on there and if it's true or not, or if our consciousness does survive our physical death. But I'm not going to get into that now. Let's just for the moment um, 
just set that aside about whether they really are talking to the deceased person or not, that doesn't matter because in the mediumship session, um, there is a very therapeutic and healing process in that interaction with the medium and the you know, receiver feeling like they are connecting with their loved one and hearing information that no one could possibly know and just feeling the sense that they're okay and that they're going to be okay. So that healing of that grief and um, feeling like they can actually move on, I don't think it takes away the grief, but it certainly supports people in being able to um, kind of move forward in their grief process and move on in their lives. So that's one simple example. And there've been an, a number of studies actually looking at that and people's um, transformational processes through the mediumship work. And then there's numerous, numerous studies, you know, like I mentioned with the energy medicine study and, you know, just healing, healing, tumors disappearing, you know, miraculous shifts from health, people going back to their doctors and they're like, I can't, I don't understand what's going on here. You know, the IONS did a whole study on spontaneous remission cases and cancers that just disappear and there's no explanation from them wow. beyond, um, you know, some sort of channeling thing going on. Wow. So I could go on and on about that, but I'll just stop there. Um, there's no end to examples. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. Um, you talk about the noetic signature. How can we, I guess the audience, learn about their own noetic signature? So, um, you know, we're working on an inventory right now to help people understand their noetic signature. And um, so that's going to be soon. So I invite your listeners again to go to our website and get on our list serve so that they can know when that comes out. But before that's released, I would invite people to find ways to be quiet and go inward and ask, what is my noetic signature? And be in a place of curiosity about what shows up for them. Um, I know for me, I've learned through my life that I feel it in my body. So I get goosebumps. So let's say I'm talking to someone and they're saying, oh, I can't decide what to do. You know, I either I'm going to move to this city or I'm going to move to this city. <laughs> and then when they start talking about this certain city, my whole body will like light up and I'll get goosebumps all over my body. And I'll say, okay, look at that one. Check that one out. <laughs> because those goosebumps to me are a sign that that is um, a more viable path, if you will. So that's just a simple example. And I imagine that, you know, many of you listening have already noticed things about yourself that um, show up for you when you're receiving information about what is best for you. And so setting the intention and giving yourself space to be in that quiet, inward, curious, inquisitive 
um, place will allow that to show up more strongly for you. Mm, wow. You, you know, Helena, it's so funny. I also get goosebumps and it's, <laughs> it's very, I, I'm not surprised, you know, I, I feel like there's a, a lot of similarities between the two of us. And, um, when mm-hmm. people would talk about, let's say a relationship or a job, the same thing would happen to me. And I would be, I had, I'd have to be very careful because <laughs> they'd be like, well, how do you right. know? Or, and I, and I was just like, well, right. my body literally lights up and, uh, I, it just feels like, um, like kind of like a heaven if there's an expansion and then if Mm. also, but then it, you know, works in other ways with people that I'm not supposed to be around or jobs I'm not supposed to take where literally, literally my throat will close up. Um, my body will just contract. And it's funny because my friends know this about me now, where if I walk into a room and I actually just feel like, you know, this is not a good space. Uh, I I will Mm -hmm. actually just walk out and leave, um, immediately. So yeah, but it took it took, a, it took a lot of time. I think that I had a a lot of uh, you know over ten years of of making the wrong decisions and just trying to use my mind, my analytical mind, to to mm-hmm. make a decision. Because I think in culture, at least when I was growing up, we were taught not to trust our emotions. Like our emotions were dangerous. Our our inner inner knowing was dangerous because it was illogical. And you know, oftentimes like. This the gut knowing, um, I think is something that has become more popular, but there's, Mm -hmm. like you said, there's so many different types of senses that are just beyond the physical. And I think when people always ask me like, how do you know? And I'm like, I don't know how I know, but I know, you know, and it's, you know, and it's always been my guiding post. And I think now, uh, I don't have to spend as much time with people, places, or things that don't get me that are not in alignment with my highest life path purpose. So, but it's... Yeah, it's a, it's a journey. Um, so beautiful. Yes, you're not alone. One of the most common, um, you know, ways that this shows up for people that we found in our surveys was exactly what you just said. I just know, and they just know, and there's no. It's it's what's called ineffable. You can't describe the knowingness. It's just a visceral. <laughs> knowingness. And then other people will say, I just feel it. I just feel that it's true. And that's it. They just feel that it's true. And so I think that's why it's challenging in our kind of um, materialistic culture to let it be okay and to, and to try to explain all this stuff because it doesn't fit within our current models. So the more that we're kind of expanding beyond this materialistic paradigm, I think the more that we'll be able to have more real conversations about this. And your example is so beautiful because the results allow you to trust more deeply the guidance that you're getting from yourself, right? Because it's like, oh, if I actually listen to the goosebumps, then things work out better for me. And when I don't listen to them, then I get into trouble, right? So it's, and I've, I've completely experienced that myself too. So I would invite people to just set that intention. It's like, okay, let me be more willing to listen and to follow through and then notice what my life looks like and how things 
are when I follow that internal guidance about the next steps for me. And you can practice that even with small decisions, you know, should I eat this thing or this thing? Or should I, you know, you don't, it doesn't have to be major life decisions that you can play and practice with this internal guidance. Mm, Yeah, 100%. And one other thing I've observed is the knowing is not like a a brick that hits you on the head, you know, it's just like a, it's like a subtle, there's a subtleness to it, which I think a lot of people mm-hmm. are confused about. Right. Cause it's, yeah. you know, it's a gentle nudge. It's like, you know, maybe you should try this. It's not like you should go this way. Right. It's, it's not the, mm-hmm. it's not the construct that we live in, you know, the way that we, we get information, which, which oftentimes feels very aggressive in, in our face. So we're just used to that, you know, type of, um, information. Uh, and so the gentle nudging oftentimes doesn't really feel correct, but that's what I've experienced. Yeah. And, you know, you can set an intention for that to be louder, but what you just described is really fascinating because it, it kind of leads to this concept of, um, yin and yang or like masculine and feminine energies. So often, you know, this inner guidance has a yin quality. It is gentle. It is um, potentiality. It is um, receptive. We have to be kind of in this receptive state and the way it shows up is in a very yin, archetypically feminine way. And that's not to say female or women only. It's both, you know, all genders have masculine and feminine qualities. And so um, our, you know, especially in Western cultures, it's very yang, it's very aggressive, it's very doing. And um, so that doesn't necessarily support us to, to be in this receptive state to receive. So when you say it's not really like strong and in your face, I think you're right because the state that we need to be in to receive that inner guidance to channel is a more yin receptive state. And that state is not nurtured for the most part, at least in the culture or society I'm living in. And, um, and it's not even really valued to sit quietly. I mean, you look at all of our social media, it's not about sitting quietly with your eyes closed and looking within. It's all very (laughs) externally focused. I have the answer. Look at me. Here's this information. And it's constantly, constantly in our face saying, here's how you should think. Here's what you should do. Here's da, 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 da. And You know, when people have questions about their life, the first thing they do is to like jump on their phone or look on the computer to look outside of themselves for the answers that they need. And that's a very yang doing energetic. Anyway, Mm. I could go on and on about that, but I'll stop. (laughs) That's yeah, that I love the way that you broke that down um, into the masculine and feminine, because I think that. Yeah, in the West, uh, our culture is sort of um, devoid of this feminine uh, energy. I think I was asking my friends this: like, what are some powerful female role models that you 
you know, know about in the West and even the ones that are, that have become powerful in our, in culture, I think oftentimes they run a very masculine frequency. And so, mm. you know, someone that's truly integrated or that is truly embodying the divine feminine, I think is really few and far between. I, I think that Princess Diana was, was one of the only ones I came up with who was like really, truly in mm. her divine feminine um, and powerful at the same time. So mm. just, I, yeah, really, really interesting. And I think also our culture is, has a really difficult time receiving. I think it's, a, it's an epidemic. We just don't know how to receive. Mm-hmm. We, we, we can only do um, and acquire. And yeah. uh, we're taught that to receive is, you know, not necessarily a good thing. So, Right, right. Uh, Helena, what sort of things have surprised you in this journey? That's a great question. I think what surprised me was how many people have actually had these experiences. I mean, I I had my own channeling experiences growing up and it was part of my family, but it was really something that I kept in hiding. And, um, you know, when I entered academia, it was like so completely taboo to talk about any of this stuff. And so I spent most of my life having my personal channeling experiences in the closet hidden. And I wasn't, (laughs) wouldn't share about it with anyone except for, you know, my family members who I knew, um, understood about it. And so when I started at IONS and started talking about this openly, I was completely blown away by how many people were coming out of the woodwork. I would do presentations and I'd have a line afterwards of people, you know, wanting to ask questions and almost always there would be so many people who'd say, you know, and they'd come in real close and they'd whisper, I had this thing happen to me and it was so amazing. And, you know, I've never told anybody about it and I can't tell anyone. And thank you so much for doing the work that you do. And that would happen over and over again in person, through emails, people coming out of the woodwork, talking about these really incredible transformative channeling experiences that they'd never tell anybody about for fear that they would be judged or be considered crazy. And so if you have had some sort of channeling experience, please know you are so not alone. (laughs) I mean, so many people, the majority of people have these experiences. It's common. It's in fact, very common. And my hope is through the work that I and others are doing that the taboos will be lifted and that we will be able to have more honest, transparent conversations about what's going on and how they work and how we can use them to support us all. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's absolutely true because it's been interesting since this podcast launched. Um, a lot of my friends who, you know, are maybe not so open to this space, um, have privately said, oh yeah, I, you know, I, there is, there is truth in this and, and I don't necessarily have answers, but, uh, I've had this experience or I've had this experience. And so it's just, it feels like we're just at the beginning of this journey. Yeah. You wrote a book called free to be me, which I had the pleasure of reading this week. And I was wondering if you could just tell the audience a little bit about this book. And I'd love to um, also dive into one particular section. And by the way, the book is wonderful. It's a very honest 
brutally honest <laughs> account of, <laughs> of your journey um, and the intergenerational journey between your mom and yourself and, and sort of, um, you know, how you navigated what it was like to, to grow up uh, as a, a Palestinian American woman um, in the Pacific Northwest and, and also just the trials and tribulations of, of what it is to, to kind of come into your own and to be into, into alignment. So I, uh, I mean, I, I felt that the, the book and what you shared had so much resonance with my life. And I'm sure for a lot of people, not just, uh, Arab Americans, but also immigrant, uh, immigrants, children of immigrants, um, anyone who has kind of, um, you know, had to kind of uh, mother themselves or uh, parent themselves in certain capacities when you have a, a parents who may not necessarily be part of a the dominant culture that you grew up in um, through no fault of their own, just just it is that way. So um, yeah, I'd love for you to just share a little bit about Free to Be Me and um, your journey. I mean, I think that we didn't really talk about the fact that you are a Palestinian American and, um, you know, how powerful uh, it is to, to kind of navigate the space, um, of consciousness as a, uh, as an Arab American. Thank you. Yes. Um, it was an incredible journey to write that book. So the book free to be me, a journey of transformation through generational healing is essentially a memoir of myself and my mother. And it actually starts with my great, great grandmothers and, talks about their essentially choicelessness in their culture and society and how, you know, the situations of their lives were dictated by those around them and how that influenced their ability to fully express themselves or actually not being able to express themselves. And the story picks up in more detail with my mother, um, who was born in Berzeit and um, was the eldest of six children and was engaged at 14 and married at 16. And, you know, basically her mom came in and said, so do you want to marry this guy? And he seems like a nice guy. And she agreed and so essentially arranged marriage. And that was common in, in, in that culture and, you know, still is to a certain extent. Um, and her kind of an emotional numbness and lack of awareness of her own self and living the life that she felt was required of her coming to this country and being exposed to, you know, many different kind of transformational um, experiences and beginning to wake up to the realization that, you know, she now could have more choice, could express herself more deeply. Um, she had me when she was 20. And so she wasn't I think it was when she was in her mid-30s when she started kind of waking up, if you will, and then raising, you know, me as a, a daughter, first-generation Palestinian-American in the West Coast in California, and all the things that I was exposed to going to, you know, regular school and such. And um, 
and how her background and then ultimate waking up and growth influenced um, my experience of growing up and how my sort of construct of who I was as a child and teenager was very influenced by my mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmothers, that that construct of choicelessness and powerlessness and suppression was essentially built into my DNA and that through various tools have been able to own them, acknowledge them, dissect them, explore them, and then let them go and find a way to expression and choice and empowerment and being able to not be angry or upset or, you know, criticize because their lives were as they were. I mean, there's no um, kind of victim tyrant in that, if you will. Um, But just really owning it, I think, allowed me to let go of its unconscious power over me and to be able to be myself more fully. And, you know, I had mentioned this masculine feminine piece that came up a lot in the book um, because we were really sharing the story of the women. And um, I think what's so profound about the way the book ends is we bring it back to this masculine and feminine within each of us. Because if you think about choiceless, disempowered women raising women and men, both the women and the men are disempowered because they are not able to fully own all of themselves. They can't honor the feminine within them because it is not being fully expressed. And so the more balanced, empowered women you have, the more they are able to raise more balanced, empowered men and women. And so it's a really um, personal, vulnerable, heartfelt story. And I invite the listeners to check it out. I'll also say that this work of generational healing isn't just storytelling. There's numerous studies now showing that um, we do pass things from generation to generation, especially trauma. We can see trauma moving from one generation to the next in how our genes are regulated And so this has been demonstrated very clearly. So it literally is in our DNA, this um, suppression, and we can um, transcend it and move beyond it. And yet the first step to doing that is acknowledging your ancestral story and the archetypes that have been passed down through the generations to you. And are there aspects of how you're living your life today actually driven 
by these unconscious patterns. So it's an invitation to the reader to explore that from themselves so that we can all become more free to be me, to be <laughs> us. Wow. Helena, thank you so much for sharing that. That was so powerful. I can't wait for so many of our audience members to listen to that part, especially. I, I mean, yeah, I think that there's a lot of um, disempowerment that I think women have gone through through the centuries in many cultures. Um, and especially there's, you know, pockets of that in the Middle East, of course, as, as it is in, in other cultures. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted to read uh, a part in your book. I hope it doesn't embarrass you, um, but I think it's an, it's an important section for us to mm -hmm. quickly discuss because I think um, one thing about being a woman, uh, which I think is a, this is a universal theme, is that there is, it doesn't feel at least like there's a real rite of passage for women um, mm -hmm. in our culture. And so I love this part in the book where you talk about the fact that you were, um, you know, going through a really pivotal point in your womanhood, um, in your journey towards womanhood, and it wasn't acknowledged. It was actually ignored. And I think that that has been true probably for the majority of women, um, just from the stories that I've heard growing up with from my uh, friend circle. Uh, this, this idea that, oh, you know, um, uh, my daughter is becoming a woman and I don't know how to deal with that. So I'm going to check out. And I, so I just think reading this would be really helpful just so that we can all kind of, um, share this common thread and this common theme and how we can shift and change the narrative for the next generation of women and really celebrate mm. our womanhood. I, I think, you know, similar to you, I didn't trust because I felt like, um, being a woman was not, uh, you know, a powerful place. I sort of rejected, um, you know, the docile feminine aspects, uh, of womanhood for a long time. And I, you know, it took me a while to also integrate that back, back in, um, because I realized, wow, I really actually do love the divine feminine within me. I just, I didn't trust it and I didn't feel like it served me in the corporate world for a long time. Um, so yeah, so I think there is a reckoning that is taking place. So I'm going to read this section really quick. Um, so you said, I can see that I was growing into a woman, but was not being honored for my development. My mother and father were not emotionally present within themselves. Thus, they could not be emotionally present with me. My blossoming triggered them and they did not know how to cope with me. There was no container to hold my budding womanhood and femininity. I did not receive all of the things that I would now want for my own daughter. There was no ritual for my moon cycle. There was no acknowledgement from the family that I was a woman now and what that meant. There was no guidance or support. There was no affection or appreciation of my changes. And I think, you know, you go on to say that because there was no acknowledgement, I think that, you know, that led you into many, uh, or at least some years of looking for that acknowledgement outside yourself and other places, maybe that were not mm -hmm. as welcoming. Mm -hmm. So I just think that was such a powerful passage. I mean, I read it a few times because I, you know, I think that that specific point is something we don't talk about enough in culture. Like why, why mm -hmm. do women not have this rite of passage and this celebration? 
you know, and I think, mm. and if there is any sort of acknowledgement, it's very brief. And then we're, we're taught like, don't, you know, uh, stay away from these types of men, you know, don't dress a certain way, don't dress seductively. It's almost like a shame. Right. And I'm, I'm not saying this in all, in all, you know, households and cultures, but in conservative culture, there is definitely a desire to create a level of shame so that we don't have to address the human, you know, we create this, right. this other force. So I, yeah, I'm just uh, curious if you want to add anything to that, but I just thought it was a really powerful section and I think it'd be very important for our readers to acknowledge. Yes. Thank you. I, I appreciate you reading that and sharing about that. It is quite a profound topic and concept. It's almost like, you know, once a young girl begins her moon cycle, it's then f- dangerous and fearful because, oh no, now she can get pregnant. And like, there's actually like a negative (laughs) connotation with it in many, you know, cultures and families. And like you said, this is very broad generalizations, obviously not all families. Um, I mean, I'm sure some families and cultures do definitely honor this transition, but the one I grew up in didn't, and I know many others don't either. And I think um, it is also connected with just the dishonoring of the feminine in general over the last, you know, many thousands of years that the feminine has been hidden, it's been suppressed, it's been ignored, subjugated, pushed down. I could go through a whole (laughs) list of verbs, but it just, it has not been honored and acknowledged. And that shows up as a, uh, shows up in this way that young girls moving towards womanhood are not hidden. They're now a liability. And so how do we begin to shift that? I feel like there are openings to be able to shift that Um, today and that bringing awareness to it is the first step. So, you know, for those of you listening who have daughters who are, you know, going to come up to that time, it's like, okay, what's a really simple and beautiful way to acknowledge that change in them? And can you lovingly bring up conversations about what it means to you to be a woman and, you know, what are her hopes and desires and fears about now being a woman and just bringing awareness and conversation to it. I I can't say that I have the answers to this or what it should look like besides bringing attention, awareness, and um, an open attitude about owning acknowledging and honoring um, this time. And I guess I also feel like I don't want to isolate this to women and girls because it also influences the men and boys. Because if we're not honoring this shift and change in the women, then their feminine parts within themselves are also not honored. And it reinforces the men to have to always be yang and masculine and men, right? And so it's, I don't want the listener to think that it's this isolated gender issue, because I don't believe that it is. 
Um, I'm blessed to have a amazing husband who can be a model for me of a balanced man. And also my brother has gone through a huge personal growth as a really beautiful, balanced dad. And I see him raising his teenage daughter now. And it just brings me to tears sometimes because he's so loving and honoring of her you know, going through her rebellious teenage phase and all this stuff. <laughs> and, and it's beautiful, but he's just, he's, it's like his presence is holding space for her to just be who she is as she is without needing to shove it down or suppress it or change it. Or, um, it's just really beautiful. So yeah. I don't have all the right answers around this except to bring awareness to it and to invite all of us to honor all parts of ourselves, (laughs) to honor all parts of it with love and with kindness and um, do the best that we can to find ways to bring celebration to the Mm. fullness of who we are. Thank you so much, Helene. That was really uh, beautiful. And I think, yeah, this integrated masculine, feminine um, is just really empowering for both genders. And yeah, I mean, I don't think any of us have like the the answer. I think we're still going through it. Um, But I think that just like you said, bringing awareness uh, to your daughters to the, you know, your nieces to your loved ones, I think is, is, is the starting point. Right. Um, and that, Mm -hmm. uh, and like, we're all paying a price for, for not having those conversations, right? Like men and women, the culture is paying a price for that. So yes, absolutely. Helena, uh, thank you so much. This is a, a really great point to end on, um, for people that, want to learn more about you or learn more about IONS, where can they find you? So the best way to connect is through our website, www.noetic.org. We have a listserv. You can become a member and we're always putting out information about our next study, our next book. So all of these things I've shared with you today will be announced through that venue. Amazing. Wonderful. And we'll add the uh, links all to the show notes as well. Beautiful. Helena, thank you so much for your time. This was just such a great conversation. I think there are so many layers uh, in our talk and I really can't thank you enough for your time. So thank you for being with us. You're so welcome, Yasmin. It's been a pleasure. For our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about the Institute of Noetic Sciences, known as IONS, health and healing, energy medicine, and finding your noetic signature. You can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Thanks again.